Heavenly Father, we are truly grateful that you are the sovereign king of all the universe. That no one can stay your hand. That your purposes are good and that what you plan to bring about will happen. God, we thank you that we can in any single moment then turn in trust and in confidence to you. Because you never get frazzled. You never get distraught. You are never caught off guard. And so, God, we we come and trust in you in the the surety and the confidence and the stability that you are the one true God and king of the universe. And God, we're grateful also that we can come together as your people. As you call us to do on this your day. Where we could come and to worship your son, Jesus Christ. Our Savior and Lord. That we could worship him for coming to live a perfect life here on earth. To humble himself. Even to the point of death on a cross. So that he could receive the punishment for sins he did not commit. That he could receive the punishment for our sins in our place. That it was by his stripes that he received that we are healed and we're forgiven. And so we come to praise the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And that we do so in the power of the Holy Spirit that you've given to us. So, God, we pray as we turn to your word that you would speak to us this morning. In an unusual situation with things moved around, we know that what is essential for us to worship will still be accomplished. That your people are gathered Your word will be proclaimed, prayers will be offered, and songs of praise will be sung. We thank you that that could be done here in snowy West Michigan, that it could be done anywhere in the world, in the simplicity of your people gathering together. So, God, as we turn to your word now, we ask that you would uh, that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds. That your Holy Spirit would already now begin to work. To take your word and to apply it into our lives. Help us to know you this morning. Through your word. Help us to know you so that it can encourage us as we walk in this world, as elect exiles that we learned about last week. 
So God, speak to us in your word this morning. We ask that you would do this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, all of your people say, Amen and Amen. So turn to First um, Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. This is week three, I believe, week three in our series in First Peter, and we will be focusing today on verse two. Um, part of me feels like I need to give an apology for going so slow. Um, in some sense, I feel like, well, I, maybe we should, maybe I should just kind of prepare people why it is that we're going through verse by verse, word by word. There's so much richness in this text, especially at the beginning. And um, so I was going to apologize, but then I'm like, this is God's word. No matter what part we study, um, it will be beneficial for us. And so I invite you to follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is his greeting. This is Peter, the, uh, the apostle of Jesus Christ, as it says in verse 1, or Simon, Simon Peter, or Cephas, or Cephas. And he's writing to these churches, and this is the greeting in his letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And this is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Our focus today will be on verse two. Again, this is written by Peter Simon. And this is written to uh, as a word of encouragement and hope in the midst of discouragement and persecution. These are uh, churches that are elect exiles. We saw the, the term last week, exiles. This uh, doesn't mean that they maybe physically were scattered around. These are probably residents of these Roman districts, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. But he wanted to drive home the point that even though they were residents of those regions, spiritually speaking, they were foreigners in this world. They're strangers and aliens or strangers and exiles or sojourners, he repeats often. They were hated by the authorities, the Roman authorities. They were hated by their own uh, government. This uh, letter was written right around the time of Nero's reign. And although I don't think the massive outbreak of persecution of Christians that happened under Nero's reign had quite yet happened. I think it was imminent. And I think that God, by the Holy Spirit through Peter, was encouraging uh, them in advance to the persecution that was about to come. And he does this encouragement by reminding them that they are exiles. But, worldly speaking, but spiritually, they were elect of God. He wants to remind them that God chose them to set his love on them in Jesus Christ, to save them, to redeem them, 
to make them his people. This is how they are to think of themselves. They're to think of themselves as elect exiles. We saw in verse 1. And that although they were strangers or aliens or exiles in the world, they were elected by God. The world rejected them, but God selects them. The same is true for us. The world rejects us, but in the midst of that, we are reminded that God selects us in Christ. So though they may be persecuted, hated, maligned, outcasts, despised, they were loved by God. We are loved by God. And we are called, apart from any virtue in us or any merit in us, we are called to be Christ's. So we're going to focus today on um, the theological underpinnings behind this idea of God's redemption of this people. And that they're um, this elected, these elect exiles, that they are so uh, because of the work of all three persons of the Trinity. So this, this election, salvation, redemption is Trinitarian. All three persons are at work in your salvation. Now, let me give a quick definition here. Trinity, my, when I'm saying this, the, my, the short little memorization I give is that we have one God who eternally exists as three separate and equal persons. That's kind of the short, the short definition. One God eternally exists as three separate and equal persons. So uh, all three persons of the, the Trinity are eternal. They're all one God. We don't have three gods. Uh, we, they don't change masks, you know, like God, the father is God. But then Jesus shows up and he's really the father in the mask of the son. No, they're three distinct persons and one God. And it is a mystery because we're getting into the mystery and the nature who, of who God is. And all three are present in verse two. Notice that it says in verse two, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So my definition, one God eternally exists in three persons. All three are present right here. Or as the New City Catechism, kids, if you've worked through the New City Catechism, and you remember this, question number three, how many persons are there in God? You remember the song? Kids, remember the song? How many persons are there in God? Let's sing it together. There are three persons in one god who are they the father the son and the holy spirit boom 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 there are three persons in one god okay you got the idea or here's a longer here's a longer one and i, I was going to have this on the slides uh so just bear with me and, and hear this this is from the london baptist confession of faith chapter two paragraph three this divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word, or the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence without this essence being divided. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, all three are infinite and without beginning and are therefore only one God who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three 
are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. So one God in three persons, yet they're distinct. And I like how it says distinctive characteristics and personal relations, because that's what Peter is showing us here in verse two. That although it's one God who exists in three persons, each of these persons plays a different part of our redemption. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. The three persons, each one has distinct actions that they're doing from the different persons of the Trinity. Uniting together to bring about a common goal, and that is the eternal and full salvation of these chosen sojourners, these elect exiles. So the first one is, is this, and I want to, well, normally we, we kind of um, speak of this work of redemption as being planned by God the Father, accomplished by God the Son, and applied by the Holy Spirit. So those will be our three points, but we're going to follow Peter's order. We're going to go with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So the first one is, the, this redemption was planned by God the Father. That's the first point. Redemption planned by God the Father. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, it says in verse 2. Okay? Now, we talked about this a little bit last week, this idea of foreknowledge. It can refer to God knowing a fact. Foreknowledge or uh, prognosco is the, the Greek word. It's kind of to, to know beforehand. Um, and that's one of the basic meanings of it is I, I'm aware, I'm a grasping a certain fact of something that's, uh, that's in the future. To know something beforehand. That's, that's one way this word is used. However, this, this word is also used to not just knowing a fact of something that's in the future, knowing a fact in advance, it also carries with it the idea of a plan and purpose and intentionality. The reason that you know a fact in advance is because you're planning on doing or accomplishing that fact in advance. From God's perspective, if you God foreknows something, he knows something that's happening in advance, he foreknows it because he's decreed to make it happen. God, does, God is, uh, before the foundation of the world, God foreknows things are happening. He, it's not that those things are just kind of, he winds up a clock and then the world kind of goes, and, but he knows kind of how things are, are going to turn out, even though he doesn't have any control over them. No, no, that's not this idea. From God's perspective, he knows all of it. He knows the end from the beginning. And so foreknowledge has with it the idea of knowing something in advance. But it has with it, the reason why is because it's by an intent or plan. And from God's perspective, that was before the foundation of the world. So Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What? is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Well, some say, well, the elect of verse 1. Without getting into too many details, there is, um, there's, there's no verb up to this point. Elect is an adjective here. And so some commentators say, well, it, it, 
it, maybe he's referring to uh, the foreknowledge of God as the, the election of these exiles. But a better way to understand it is what he's saying is that actually everything that we're describing in verse 1 is according to the foreknowledge of God. So it's, it's the whole thing. Or to put it uh, this way, um, the foreknowledge of God the Father modifies, and I'm quoting from a commentator here, modifies the whole situation that the readers um, find themselves in as described in verse 1. So these elect exiles or chosen sojourners being dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, uh, Cappadocia, Bithynia, etc. Um, all of that is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So it might be kind of easy to, to miss as you're reading over here, but what he's saying is, hey, you're, this whole status of your being exiled, strangers in this world, scattered among the dispersion, that is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In other words, it's to say that whatever situation you find yourself in, is according to God's purpose and plan. Whatever situation you find yourself in is ultimately according to God's purpose and plan. That means for them, that means their status as sojourners, their privileges as being God's chosen people, even being in a hostile environment, being hated by other people, all of that was known by God before the world began. That means that whatever situation that we find ourselves in as Christians in this world, when we are sojourners and strangers and exiles and hated by the world, this doesn't catch God off guard. He's not surprised by this. He knows this. And, as not, and he, not, he doesn't just know it as he knows the fact in advance. He knows this, that this is part of his plan for us. This is all in accordance with his foreknowledge. This is now speaking of the providence of God. The activity of God as he preserves his creatures. That God is active in the world. And that he directs all things to their appointed end. He didn't just wind things up and is watching things being played out. And then when, when the clock runs out and he decides to, to pull the plug on the whole thing, he's going to come in and bail us out and rescue the whole situation. No, this is all in accordance with God's working of his plan for the benefit of his people. And this well-known passage in Romans 8 gets to the same idea. Peter is echoing here, saying the same sentiment that Paul does in Romans 8, verses 28 through 31. When Paul writes, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, to be conformed to the image of his son. Did you catch that? So here's that foreknowledge language, just like Peter is using here. 
And that those whom God foreknew, he's predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So meaning he's using all of the situation that we find ourselves in the world as a way to shaping us into the image of Jesus Christ. He continues, in order that we might be the firstborn among the brothers, many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then he ends with this amazing question, what shall we say to these things? If, if God is for us, if God has foreknown from the beginning of the world, the plan for how he was going to shape us is his children into the image of his son. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. Amen. And so Peter echoing is that sentiment here. He's saying your exile, your sojourning is according to the foreknowledge of God, the father. So God, the loving heavenly father has a plan for you. And what you're going through is a part of his plan. Okay. Now, sometimes that's very difficult to think about, especially when we go through very difficult and trying times, because then we think, so, um, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Right. How many of you have ever, ever been in moments when you've experienced that? And that sometimes a very difficult thing to think about is, is God permitting and allowing this to happen to me? And it is very difficult, very trying. Frankly, that's much better than the alternative, which is what's happening to you is out of God's control. Of the two, as difficult as it is sometimes to think God is putting us through difficult, uh, difficult things, it's far more reassuring to know that God has a purpose behind it than for, to, than for you to go, what happened to you wasn't according to God's plan. God has a loving plan for you. And what you're going through right now is a part of that plan, no matter how difficult that is. So your exile, your dispersion, that's all according to the foreknowledge of God, the father. So here is the redemption is planned by the father. That's the first person of the Trinity. The second one is actually the third person of the Trinity, and that's God, the Holy Spirit. So the second point, if you're writing this down, is redemption applied by God, the Holy Spirit. Redemption applied by God, the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here we get to uh, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is who Peter brings next. The Holy Spirit is not a what. The Holy Spirit is a who. Remember? One God eternally exists in three persons. The Holy Spirit is not a, a force, an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is a person. And let me give a little bit of uh, just a summary here of who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. The Holy Spirit creates. The Holy Spirit gives life. The Holy Spirit appoints and commissions ministers he directs ministers where to preach. We saw that in Acts, the, the, uh, the book of Acts, as the Holy Spirit would lead them to um, different cities to go to. The Holy Spirit directs ministers 
where not to preach. Remember in Acts 16, uh, Paul isn't intended to go one direction and the Holy Spirit said, nope, you're not going there. We were prevented by the Holy Spirit from going into that region. He instructs ministers what to preach. The Holy Spirit speaks in and by the prophets. The Holy Spirit reproves. The Holy Spirit comforts. The Holy Spirit helps us in our infirmities. The Holy Spirit teaches, guides, testifies to Christ, glorifies Christ, has, a, has power of his own. He searches all things, works everything according to his will, dwells with the saints. The Holy Spirit is a person you can be seen in the fact that he can be grieved, he can be vexed, he can be lied to, he can be resisted, he can be despised and insulted. And the one, that, the one attribute or aspect of the Holy Spirit's work that Peter focuses on here in this passage is what? According uh, to the knowledge of God the Father in the what of the Holy Spirit? Good job. Debbie figured everybody is what? The sanctification of the Holy Spirit. The setting apart this is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. What does sanctification mean? Well, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is, has, has two aspects to it. There's, the first aspect is this. The Holy Spirit gradually works in Christians to free them more and more from remaining sin. Okay? This is the putting of our sin to death, as Paul writes in Romans 6. The Holy Spirit helps to put sin to death. Or if you want the, uh, the, old pure, the old Puritan terminology for this, which I love, mortification. Mortify the flesh. That's what the Holy Spirit helps to do. So the sin nature that we have that still remains in uh, born-again Christians needs to be mortified, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the first half. That's the, the mortification. And then there's the vivification side. That's the other fancy term. And that's to make us alive more and more to live like Christ in holiness, to live like Christ in faith and in love. And this, too, is also uh, Trinitarian. Um, Joel Beakey mentions the pursuit of Trinitarian godlikeness which I love that we are to imitate the character of God, the father. We'll see that a little bit later here in first Peter. Um, God is holy. Therefore you should be holy. He says, so we imitate the character of God, the father. We also conform to the image of Christ. I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter two, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count Equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and becoming found in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this Paul says, hey, this the life of Christ, you should have that same mindset, too. So conforming to the image of Christ and then submitting to the mind of the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in Romans 8, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. 
But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So there's the mortification side work that the Holy Spirit does. But then there's the vivification side and the vivification side is to make us alive is also Trinitarian. We imitate the character of the father. We conform to the image of Christ and we submit to the mind of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's role, according to people to, to Peter, is their sanctification. And this, too, is according to God's plan. In the context, this is referring to their every aspect of their of their sad, their status as as sojourners, as exiles. I'm reading from a commentator here, and I think this is well put. The unseen, unheard activity of God's Holy Spirit surrounds them almost like a spiritual atmosphere. Notice it's in, in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. In which they live and breathe, turning every circumstance, every sorrow, every hardship into a tool for his patient sanctifying work. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what's so loaded in this this phrase. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, this redemption. Okay, remember the first one is the redemption planned by God the Father. The second one is redemption applied by God the Holy Spirit. And the third one is redemption accomplished by God the Son. And then notice it says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. The reason I think Peter puts this last is because he's talking here about um, about the ultimate goal. Obedience to Christ, obedience to Christ. What does obedience to Christ mean? Jesus, Jesus Christ here mean? I don't think it means the initial receiving of the gospel. Peter is already, he's addressing them here. They, he knows that they are, they're believers and he's encouraging them. This is not their initial reception of the gospel. That's not what is meant by obedience to, to Jesus. Rather, this is the daily obedience of belief of believers. That God's purpose in our present existence as elect exiles is that our lives ought to be leading toward increasing obedience to Christ. This is into. The Greek word there is the into uh, for obedience into Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is our goal. According to the foreknowledge of God, the father, he places us in situations and every aspect of our life is according to his plan that the Holy Spirit will use these things as the sanctifying work to sanctify us. And the ultimate goal is more and more Christ likeness. Great, right? That's the goal. Peter's reminding them of all of this right here. But what about this phrase at the very end, sprinkling with his blood mean? Why does it go obedience to Christ? 
and the sprinkling with his blood. Well, I think that Peter puts that there at the end in a beautiful kind of way because he knows that obedience in this life is always incomplete. Right? Even the most mature Christians will stumble and fall and sin. Anybody disagree with me on that? No? We know that uh, God's purpose, obedience to Jesus Christ, actually can never be completely fulfilled in this life. And so I think that Peter adds this here at the end. That our lives uh, are leading to more and more obedience with Christ. Nevertheless, needs some sprinkling with his blood. Now, what's and that's an interesting, uh, interesting wording there, right? Like, so it's the sprinkling with his blood. What what is that referring to? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you you'll remember that a lot of especially in the tabernacle and the temple, that things were purified with the blood of goats and bulls, right? So they would have to sprinkle the altar and sprinkle various parts and artifacts of the tabernacle as to set it apart as holy. But that's usually things. Three times in the Old Testament, you have a mentioning of sprinkling of blood on persons. And so that's kind of a, a, an interesting interesting to debate well which if he's referring to these elect exiles as needing to be sprinkled with his blood what is that what is that referring to what old testament reference could that be alluding to the first instance is the uh, covenant initiation ceremony at mount sinai you guys remember this from exodus chapter 24 god had just given the 10 commandments in exodus chapter 20 and then he gives this covenant he makes a covenant with this this people and he lists off a little bit of the basic stipulations of this covenant ceremony and they said yes we will do everything that you do and then Moses throws the blood at the people sprinkles the blood on the people okay this could be a reference here i don't i don't think that he's m- making reference to an initiation ceremony here um the second instance is the ceremony on the ordination for Aaron for the Levitic Uh, priesthood and also his uh, sons when they sprinkled the blood on the sons i don't think this is what it refers to here because a little bit later in first peter he talks very specifically you are already priests so i think the third option might be more likely in leviticus chapter 14 um in in uh, issues of leprosy you, uh, you needed to be healed from the leprosy. There would be a purification ceremony where blood was said to be sprinkled on uh, the leprous person. Now you're, you're sitting here going, Maybe, how, how are you getting that from First Peter here? Well, uh, this is the, all, all three of these are just a, a guess to which one Peter is, is referencing. But I think this one actually kind of makes a little more sense. Because I think what he is saying here, in the case of the leper, somebody who had to be outcasted from the rest of the people of God, and this sprinkling of the blood was the assurance that they were clean, and now they could actually become part of the people of God again. That their, their defilement 
has now been taken away. And they can resume their place within the community. I think maybe that's a little bit of what Peter could be getting at here. Again, you could take your pick. It could be any one of those, uh, those three. But that does seem to make a, a, the last one does seem to, to stick into my mind. Is that when, if the goal is for us to be obedient to Christ and knowing that we're going to fail and stumble and fall in many ways, we have the assurance through the blood of Christ, not the blood of goats or, or bulls or lambs. We have the blood of Christ himself that whenever we come to him, we have the assurance that his one sacrifice for all times is sufficient to to cleanse us and restore us in our community. I think that fits really well. And that this is what Peter is reminding them that everything that you go through is according to the plan of God, the father in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Christ and that we have sprinkling with his blood to assure us when we fail, we can come back into fellowship with him. Sprinkled blood in the Old Testament was that visual reminder um, to God and to God's people that a life and a sacrifice has been paid. And we have that sacrifice is in Jesus Christ. So this is a Trinitarian shape to this redemption. Friends, we don't want to miss this Trinitarian shape to redemption. That was planned and purposed by God the Father. That's accomplished by the work of Christ and applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Which is why um, this, this doctrine is so important. It's not just something that we need to know in order to debate people from, from other religions that would deny the Trinity. No, this doctrine of the Trinity, all three persons of the one Godhead working together in unison for your redemption is so important. As a matter of fact, I left off the last sentence of that London Baptist Confession of Faith paragraph. This is the last sentence. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence on him. I'll say that again. The tr this truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all of our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence on him. It's not an esoteric doctrine that we need to hold. All three persons from before the foundation of the world are working together for your redemption. And that you have God the fathers who has this love for this people and gifts a people to his son, Jesus Christ, who suffers and dies for that people. And then when he ascends into heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell believers. And so the Holy Spirit works to point us to Christ, to glorify Christ. And Christ then is interceding for us with the Father. You see this chain of of connection, the Trinity, all three are working to draw us into union with God the Father. Beautiful picture. All for the glory of Christ. So friends, you are elect exiles. 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his, his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. With that, let's close in a word of prayer. And then we will, in response, let's offer songs of, of praise. Shall we? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the love that you have shown us in sending your son. Lord Jesus, our Savior, we thank you for coming and suffering and dying and rising again and granting to us new life from the Father. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you dwell within us as believers to do the sanctifying work in us. Holy Spirit, help us to put our sinful deeds to death and then work in us the life of Christ. Help us to have uh, our minds fixed on you, the Spirit, which is life and peace. Help us to, um, to submit ourselves to Christ and to grow more and more into the character of our Father in heaven. So God, we thank you this morning. And it's in Christ's mighty name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. One moment. Control the slides from the computer. Let's turn on. brothers and sisters, let's stand together for our songs in response. And let's say these words. 
Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. There's a new song this morning. Uh, it's fairly easy to catch on to, so uh, do your best to, to catch on with us here.
Let's take a, a moment to say these words from 1 John chapter uh, 8 through 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, let's take a moment and just quietly with your head bowed and your eyes closed as we talked about here with for the obedience to Jesus Christ and with the sprinkling of his blood that we we fall short and fail in living up to perfect obedience to Christ and so we come to him and realize when we confess our sins to him he will forgive us so let's confidently uh, just take a moment and express that
brothers and sisters, hear this word of assurance. The message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And we say, thanks be to Christ. And let's sing our glory be to Christ.
brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. And also
come at Kmart. <laughs> Kmart used to have blue light special. So they go around the store with this like blue flashing light. <clears throat> and uh That's a 